Good morning, everybody. Hey, today's passage will be First uh, Peter, chapter one, verse uh, three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in, in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thank you, Jesus, for reading that, and also uh, special thanks to Pastor Mark. Mark and Cindy will be out of town next week, so I'm actually uh, going to be preaching two weeks in a row, so you're stuck with me next Sunday as well, but special thanks to him for um, allowing me to, 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 do, to split this passage up into two Sundays, and one of the reasons I asked to do that is because the three verses we're looking at today, I've probably spent more time meditating on it personally than any other passage in Scripture, so... It's special to me, and um, from, for today, hopefully you'll get an outflow of lots of time spent considering the impact and the worth of these verses, the value of these verses. So we're going to do this a little bit different today from our norm. I don't have any points to share with you today, but I hope you don't find what I say pointless, okay? We're, gonna go, we're literally going to go through this phrase by phrase and look at it. Some will spend a little bit longer on than other phrases, but we are going to cover... Um, all of the phrases in these three verses. Last week, Pastor Mark started us in our journey in, in, in 1 Peter. Uh, you see these lovely banners behind me. Uh, thanks to, to, I think, uh, Janet and Carrie for, for making those happen. We're calling our look at, at this book called uh, Encouragement for Elect Exiles, right? And so today, Peter just goes off the charts with his encouragement. And uh, we get to start, although the whole book is, is, is filled with that. It's appropriately titled. But last week, we looked at Peter's greeting, you know, and when one writes a letter, there's a pattern you follow. Like we have in our country, in our culture, you would start out by saying, dear Chrissy. And that's your, that's your greeting. And then your, your ending or your closing, it would be with all my love, Scott, right? And so during Peter's time, there was a, a, a format they followed too. You always announced who you were. You, you, you would speak to who you were writing to, and then uh, the Christian authors of letters would always give praise to God, right? Peter ended with grace and peace, be multiplied to you, and so forth. And so that was his pattern. But, but how many of you know often the hardest thing to write in a letter is that very first sentence that comes after the greeting, right? Where do we begin? Like, where do you get started with what you want to say? And so that's where Peter finds himself today. He's like, where are we going to launch out from? Or how do I want to launch out when I want to talk about the greatness of God? And I imagine, as he was thinking, what do I write next? Perhaps his mind went back to his personal time spent with Jesus. Maybe how Jesus called him at the very beginning to follow him after he landed a huge, helped him land a huge catch of fish after his own efforts had failed. Maybe he thought about the time he was carrying that basket full of leftover bread and fish after he had seen Jesus do so much with so little. Maybe he was thinking about the time that he had seen Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop and dazzling in all of his heavenly glory. 
Maybe he was thinking about that time when they were on the boat and the storm was raging in the sea and Jesus came walking up to him and Peter said, can I walk out to you? And he did. And then he started to sink and, he, and Jesus caught him by the hand. Maybe his, his mind went to the last week of Jesus' life. How Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet and Peter said, not so, my Lord. You are not allowed to wash my feet. And Jesus said, it has to be this way. Maybe he thought about the time he tried to correct Jesus when Jesus was speaking about the suffering and upcoming crucifixion that he was going to encounter. And, he, and Jesus took him aside and rebuked him and ended that conversation by saying, before this day ends, you're going to deny me three times. And then maybe he thought about warming his hands by the fire. On that night, Jesus was arrested and the lady looked at him and said, you too are one of his disciples because your accent betrays you. And he said, no, I don't even know this guy. And you know, Mark's version of the gospel says that he invoked curses to put forth how adamant he was that he didn't know Jesus. And then maybe he reheard in his ear the sound of that rooster crowing the moment he did that and the tears that followed afterwards in his own life. Then perhaps he thought about racing to the tomb that morning and holding the empty burial cloth of Jesus in his hands and shortly afterward seeing the resurrected Jesus with his very own eyes. Then maybe he thought about the time he was fishing and he saw Jesus on the shore and he jumped in, dove into that cold water and swam as fast as he could to get to Jesus. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Each time he answered yes and Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Maybe perhaps he thought about the time that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in a language that he had not previously known. And as a crowd gathered, he began to say, this is who Jesus is. This is how great he is. You need to repent and believe in him and be baptized. And thousands of people responded to that message. Maybe he thought about the time that he was on his way to the synagogue and he encountered a lame beggar. And he looked down and said, silver and gold, I don't have anything. But he took that man by the hand, and for the very first time in that man's life, he helped him rise to his feet and stand and walk. Perhaps all these things were going through his mind, and maybe when he reached that point, he just threw up his hands, and he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he wrote it down. Peter's salvation meant something to him because of all the history he had with Jesus. The good, the bad, the truths, the trust and the doubts, the bold times, the fearful times, it all mattered to Peter. It all made a difference in his life. And it all turned out for Peter's good. You know, it's certainly appropriate for us to ask God for blessing. You know, a lot of us are in the habit of saying, God, bless me for this, or bless so-and-so for this, and we ask for God to bless us, and that's certainly right and appropriate, but how much more should our lives be in the pattern of blessing God? There's great reason, indeed, to bless God by heaping praises onto God, declaring how excellent he is for all that he's done and who he is. Sorry, I fell behind on this. <clears throat> so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After Peter said that, 
you know, we just recapped a lot of the highlight or the high moments and low moments in Peter's life with Jesus. And so it's perfectly fitting for him to acknowledge the reality that God's salvation starts according to his great mercy. It's in God's nature to withhold the penalties that we deserve because of our sin. And he's perfectly right in condemning us to death. Death is the just result of our own sinful choices. And God has the power to do just that for all of humanity. But in his compassion, he offers forgiveness of sins to whosoever believes through Jesus Christ. Peter received that directly from Jesus And he treasured it greatly. It's according to God's great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. God, motivated by his own mercy, initiates what is necessary to both make possible and lead us into salvation. If someone is the cause of something, it means that they are the reason that something else is happening. Whoever or whatever is the cause is what makes something else happened. In this case, God did what none of us could do, and only he could do by, make, by making us a new creation or born again. Remember when Jesus was having that conversation with Nicodemus at night? That's the first time we really hear that in Scripture, that term born again. And he says, you know, you, you know if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I do this? Am I able to climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And of course, there's no way that can happen. It rests with God to take us and form something inside our nature that is new. Now, for those of you listening that are on the other side of that same coin that our faith matters, Peter agrees with you. Okay, In the seven verses we're going to look at over the next two Sundays, three times Peter emphasizes our faith and one time today. So we're going to get to you. Be patient. Um, But clearly understand that God is the cause of our salvation. He first made salvation possible by sending his son Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And secondly, he makes it possible in our own hearts to become a new creation. And that we cannot do of ourselves. So he both made the way for us to be saved and he leads us into that way of salvation. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, Peter gets into the benefits and purposes of being born again, and the first one he describes is the reward of hope. You know, when the Bible speaks of hope, it frames it not as a desire or a want. Most of you know this. It's not a desire or want of something to happen in the future. Like we may say, I hope it doesn't rain today, right? And it might rain today, but our hope or desire is that it doesn't. You might say, I hope this sermon ends soon, right? That's your want or desire, possibly. But the Bible frames hope that it is a certain expectation, a full confidence of a future goodness coming our way. Hope is a certain expectation that something good is coming to us. God is saving us into a future goodness. Now, Peter calls this hope living. This hope has life to it. What does that mean? It means even right now, 
If something is alive, it means it has a heartbeat. It has, it has activity and power, something dynamic that's happening right now. So this hope is not just sitting way down there for us. It's not only sitting way down for us that one day to walk into. It's alive right now. He's hinting that there's a goodness alive and active right now. As new creation still existing on earth, there's a dynamic power happening in the right now. And it is a wonderful foretaste of what is to come. A couple weeks ago, in my house, I, had the, I was assigned the task to bake some chocolate chip cookies. Okay? Now, I will put my family's recipe of chocolate chip cookies up for anyone. Okay, They're the best I've ever had. And my aunt introduced that into our family years ago. Okay? Now, if you think you have a great one, I am, I'm submitting myself as as a candidate to test out your family's recipe a dozen i'll be glad to compare it to mine but but i was i was um getting i was supposed to to bake some chocolate chip cookies okay there is few things few desserts better in life than a very warm chocolate chip cookie coming right out of the oven okay all right but that raw cookie dough tastes pretty good too okay so you know I'm baking the cookies, and every once in a while, you couldn't help but just take some and, and a spoonful and, and put it in, you know, uh, and, and enjoy it right there and now. But waiting 11 minutes for them to come out of the oven is better, okay? So think of this hope as kind of like good chocolate chip cookie dough, that you can enjoy it now. There's, there's, there's real enjoyment to it now, but the very best part of the hope is coming, at a future time. We've been, God's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This word through, it's the first of two times that it's used in these three verses. The second time's in connection to, with our faith. But think of through as a channel or opening that allows us to obtain something or arrive at a certain place. So being born again, being full of this powerful act of hope Having our very own salvation, it's opened up to us by God raising Jesus Christ from the dead, never to die again. Let's not minimize the impact of that factual event. The historical reality of Jesus Christ's tomb being empty should be stronger evidence than anything that our doubts can produce that this salvation is real. We could not be born again without Jesus' dying and substitution for our sins in order to grant his reward to us. It is the very foundation of our certain hope. Further, we've been saved and born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is the second benefit that Peter lists in the passage that God's causing us to be born again leads us to an inheritance. An inheritance is something of value that you hand down to another person, most often a relative. So inheritances have to have inheritors. And for those of us who are new creations, what God has done at the time of that work is to adopt us as sons and daughters into his family, as real children into his family. We get the full privileges of his natural only begotten son. Paul says it elsewhere in scripture this way, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We share together 
in this reward, heaven. God has made us the inheritor. So how would one describe this inheritance? How does Peter get into describing the inheritance? Well, what's interesting is he really doesn't. He's not able to. He really starts by describing what it's not, right? If I wanted to describe to you guys what this is, I would say it's small, it's rectangular, it's about a half inch thick, it has a screen on one side. If I started describing that, it wouldn't take very long for you guys to figure out, well, he's holding a cell phone. But what if I try to describe this to you by saying what it's not? What if I said, what I'm holding in my hand is not green, it's not triangular, it's not very thick, does your mind automatically go to this? Not necessarily, right? In fact, not. It doesn't. And so it's very hard for Peter to try to describe what exactly heaven, the greatness of heaven in our inheritance looks like. So instead, he has to tell us by what it's not. He says that it's imperishable or actually in the King James Version, it says incorruptible. That means that our, the inheritance God is giving us, it cannot be destroyed. It's never going to come to an end. He says it's undefiled. This inheritance is not going to be spoiled or tainted in any way. It's not going to lose its value as time goes on. He says it's unfading. God's inheritance for us is not going to lose any vitality or strength. So if we were to use the opposites to try to describe in some positive characteristics of what heaven or this inheritance looks like, we would say it's everlasting. It's going to continue on forever and ever. It's going to remain pure, and it's going to contain the same high value. At any point in time, you go to analyze it. And it's also going to remain strong and, and, and be full of the same amount of power on day one as any other day that you go to measure it. Now, we can borrow from other places in Scripture to perhaps positively describe the inheritance in the best way or define it as the, heaven and our inheritance is the gift of the presence of God himself for us, with us, in our midst, his fullness forever and ever. That's as close as we can come. My friends, may we all come to and remain in a place of awe over that coming moment when this inheritance is revealed and given to those who are born again. Our salvation, which God secured for us on the cross, is so extraordinary, it's so amazing, it's so astonishing that the Bible most consistently communicates to us that we don't have the words or even the capacity to understand how great it really is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 that the heart of man does not have the imagination to be able to perceive what God has prepared for those who love him. We don't have the imagination to think about it, which is why the Bible kind of stays clear of trying to describe in specifics what it is. And think about this. We are pretty creative. We, we have wild imaginations. I just watched a movie where Tom Cruise drove a motorcycle off a rocky and grassy cliff going 80 miles an hour into the air, off, the, off this ravine, okay? He parachutes down, steers his parachute onto a very fast-moving train, 
lands in the window of the moving tray and drop kicks the bad guy, okay? That takes imagination to come up with something like that. But Peter in the Bible says we don't have the imagination to think about and put into words and describe in a picture the greatness of heaven. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So why does Peter so confidently promise such a bold inheritance for those who are born again? Because God is the keeper of it. To keep means that you cause something to continue in a specific condition. So God is protecting and preserving his own inheritance that he wants to bestow on each of us who believe. It is in heaven where God is. This suggests that there's a future time and a place for this inheritance to be given. And it is for us. It's kept for us in heaven. The totality of this greatness is for you, it's for you, it's for you, and it's for you. And we don't get a piece of it. We get the whole thing. Each of us gets the whole thing. It's kept in heaven. For us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So we've seen that God has caused us to be born again. And God has a spectacular inheritance waiting for us in heaven. But what about the in-between? The temptations, the fears, the sufferings that we endure now in this life. We'll spend more time on this next week. But how can we be assured that we'll even make it to the end to receive this reward? God started this by raising his son from the dead and caused us to be born again. And he has at the end an unimaginable reward. So then does he just stand back and say, hey, you're on your own from here. Good luck. Hope you make it. No. He remains involved the entire way because we're being guarded by the power of God. So what is God guarding? Well, it says who. It's right, so he's guarding us. But what specifically is he guarding? This is the second time that we see the word through in this passage. The second channel Peter tells us that this living hope and this inheritance is made available to us is by our faith or through our faith. Our faith or belief that Jesus is who he is and did what he did in defeating death on our behalf. Our faith is real and it matters greatly. Let me ask you this. Let's just accept that we're all sinners. Okay? What is the one thing that would keep us out of heaven? Given that. Our unbelief. It's the one thing. To look at what God did through Jesus Christ and say, I don't believe it. Or even worse, I don't want it. Is what prevents us, or anyone, from realizing this hope and obtaining this inheritance. Peter wants you and I to know that beyond a shadow of any doubt, God is keeping our faith fully secure. Peter's acknowledging here that there are real dangers between when we're born again and when we Claim that inheritance in heaven. There's a battle still in progress. Again, we're going to look at that more specifically next week. I do have three points for next week. We'll look at that. The goal of the other side 
in this is to frustrate us and discourage our faith. It's, it's to make us give up in believing and following after God. And if we were left to ourselves, many of us, if not all of us, would not make it. We'd give up. We need God's protection of our faith as we're in this journey in life. We need outside resources that are far beyond what we can bring in our own strength for our faith to last. And it is the power of God working in cooperation with our faith to ensure that we receive this salvation. That should give us great comfort. God's fully committed to keeping our inheritance, kept in heaven for us, and he's equally unswerving in his commitment to guard our faith to the very end. Want a specific example? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And I'm almost done. I referenced this story earlier when I was going through the life of Peter in this encounter. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is pulling Peter aside. And he says this to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen to that. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Does that not sound like the power of God is guarding Peter's faith? So from that moment, the power of God, and even before that, was working in Peter's life. When he denied him three times, there's at least two gospel accounts that say Peter wept bitterly. What was that about? That was him feeling remorse over denying his Lord. What he said, I'll never do this. I mean, you think about it. Peter's end game in life was to stick with Jesus to the very end. He said, I am, you, this may all happen to you and I'll be right by your side. And then he ran. He denied Jesus and he ran so easily from what it seems. Most people would just give up and say, that's it, I'm done. I've lost. But Peter was hit with the repentance of God. These prayers were working. And the power of God was bringing him back, right? And he was fully restored on the shore that day when Jesus face-to-face said, Peter, do you love me? And he got to answer. For each time that he denied him, he got to answer yes. God's power was guarding his faith. Finally, it's for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The very best of this salvation is coming to us in the future. Yes, there's benefits now. There's real hope now. But we only hold part of that prize, of that inheritance. The full inheritance, the full life is coming at a future day when Christ returns from heaven to earth the second time. We're being preserved through the harm we face right now. One day's coming when we'll be fully delivered from this earth and get to enjoy that glorious prize forever and ever. Untainted, unspoiled. 
never going to fade. If I had to sum up these verses in one statement, it would be that God causes us to be born again into such an amazing salvation and inheritance while guarding our faith until the very end. These are rich verses here in 1 Peter. I hope they, if they don't already, I hope over time they can mean something to you like they have to Peter and him writing them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you've caused us to be born again into a living hope and into an inheritance, Lord. Lord, and we just, we just trust you and believe you that we, it's not for us right now to know the fullness of that inheritance, that we don't have the capacity, but because you are who you are, we do trust that it's glorious and great. And we look forward to it. We thank you, Lord, that you're keeping it, you're preserving it and protecting it for us. We thank you, Lord, that it's your very power that's guarding our faith as we live this time on earth and face life on earth. Lord, we just acknowledge we need your help in our faith. As your disciples pray, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Thank you that's available to us. Lord, we just bless you this morning. We thank you for the greatness of your salvation. We thank you for your greatness, Lord. That, Lord, according to your mercy, Lord, you didn't leave us condemned to die an eternal death. That you made a way through the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that we may live with you forever. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. It's in your name we pray. Amen.